Welcome back to Lay Film. My name is Kevin, and today I have my co-host and great friend, Patrick. And uh, today we're going to be continuing the ongoing series that we have of Twin Peaks, Season 1. Today we will be discussing Episode 3, entitled Rest in Pain. I have my coffee here with me, uh, black as a midnight sky on a moonless night. And... I think that we're all ready to just dive right in. What do you what do you think, Pat? Uh I'm ready. Alright. Uh in the previous episode, we ended with the incredible yeah. with the what? We found out who the killer was. Yep, we did. It's over. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's nothing there's nothing left for us to do. Yep, we got a an entire Season one, season two, three movies. Yeah, all that all that stuff can fall by the wayside now. The mystery is solved. And we start up in the Great Northern with a great shot of Audrey, who is you she's she kind of reminds me of like a, a, a cat like waiting to find something to like pounce on in a way. <laughs> and in this case, it's Cooper. Um she uh sits down with him and they have like a little chat and then I, I love this great little thing that Coop does at, where he has Audrey write down her name and then he just whips out the note and is like yep it's her <laughs> like it, it's such a simple callback to the uh, to his investigative style and then um, we get a little bit more clarity on uh, One-Eyed Jax um Pat, like, what what were some of your like thoughts going on in this scene? Uh, it's 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 dancing on a wire, kinda between uh, you know Audrey's position and character and Cooper's. It's it's trying to finesse their possible relationship, but it's 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 staying. It's trying to keep its hand from being creepy, which it does successfully. And I think a part of that is from the dynamics of the characters and their interactions. And uh, yeah, I did want to touch on like the the dynamic between the two characters is great. Uh, Audrey has the uh, mischievous nature as well as like a very childlike moments like when she's poking the hole in the coffee cup like being a bully to the attendant at the great northern pretty early on when we're introduced to her character and like eavesdropping on her parents conversations but then when she's with cooper she takes on a more uh a more mature like a persona and then uh cooper is a uh, expertly written expertly written to uh, be receptive to that as well as like aware of his position and he keeps it at arm's length and uh, this interaction between the two of them has a couple of great little uh, 
like you mentioned, the investigation technique, as well as just like great character building where Cooper can notice. He's noticing the details, but he's still engaged with Audrey and like a at least a mutual nature. But yeah, like the great little calling her out with the handwriting. Yeah, it's so it's so funny the way he does it too. He all he he's just quiet and then he's like, "There's something you'd like to tell me," <laughs> and he's just so on top of it all, isn't he? Yes. That yeah, they talk about the perfume and she yeah she drops the hints. And he gives her a warning about you know the investigation. But he's still like joking around with her about it. It, it also uh, opens up the map of Twin Peaks a little bit more. It adds, like, another area of uh, Horn's department store. Um, I, like, of course the perfume counter has been mentioned up to this point, but it was kind of difficult to determine where or at which greater location it's a part of. Um, and I also like this moment in Audrey's uh, development because... She is very clear about not being friends with with uh, Laura, and she's able to recognize that they are both very alike in a lot of their own troubles, and it cre- it builds a lot of empathy between the two. And I feel like this episode does a great job of lending a little bit more insight into the connection uh, that. Laura had with Audrey's family, especially with Johnny Horn later on, which we'll we'll get to. Um, yeah, uh, I I really enjoyed the way that uh, Cooper like keeps everything platonic between the two. He um, like when Audrey's like toying around with him, he mentions that he's a special agent and that sort of thing, and to basically you know, build the boundary between the two to not let it get creepy. Um, and then it shifts to the the end point of, of episode two. It's a, it's a nice little callback to the dream sequence that we had that uh, basically planted a lot of the seeds uh, that had been there all along. And now they're starting to come to fruition for Cooper. And he calls, uh, well, Harry and Lucy arrive and I I really enjoyed the editing of this particular sequence where um, Cooper is just so ecstatic about you know this this beautiful morning and like getting breakfast like with uh with pancakes and like he talks about like how uh, the taste sensation between maple syrup colliding with ham it's just like out of this world um, and then um, I like that Lucy's there too. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like the, the two main people from the police station, or the sheriff's station. It's like... <laughs> Truman and Lucy, she like, walk in, and I, I I, don't think we see a lot of Lucy outside of the sheriff's station. Yep, I agree. I don't... I think that she's always there because she's, like, the main receptionist. Mm-hmm. But but it, like, shows how important this... this uh, this uh, thing is to Cooper that he feels the need to bring Lucy in on this as well, which I, I show like, I th- I just love the way that all of these characters interact with each other and have like a great amount of like respect and like admiration for one another. It's very wholesome in a very dark uh, environment, 
And I, I feel like that's like the life of the show in a nutshell. Um, but yeah, the uh, the intercutting of like the dream se sequences in this sequence is, is very important because it... I'm, I'm trying to think back to when this was originally made in 1990, I want to say. Um, I... I've been because I've been watching a lot more things lately that have commented on the link between uh, cinema, television, whatever you want to call it, uh, that and dreams and how basically the entire time that you're watching these sorts of things play out on screen, preferably in a in an environment that doesn't have a lot of uh, stimuli to take away from your experience. You're sort of lulled into this dreamlike state of, of comfort and passivity in a way, but also being engaged um, to to immerse yourself in this whole other world and experience. And to see like this television show bring forth that sort of analytic uh, investigation of dreams as a whole and to take it seriously, like especially with Cooper or, or uh, with Truman, um, like the first thing he says is, uh, he's like, oh, is this about like Tibet? <laughs> like, and then Cooper corrects him. He's like, no, 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 it's not about Tibet. But you could tell that Truman is really placing a lot of blind faith in Cooper right now in the oh, best yeah. way possible. Yeah, I love when uh, Cooper recounts the dream and he gets to the end when he says like, oh, I don't remember that part of the dream, which is like... It, like that happens to that happens to everyone. Like you have a dream and you remember it for like the first five minutes you're awake and then you forget it. Sometimes it's gone forever. So yeah, they include that and then yeah, uh, Harry and Lucy's like first reactions to hearing that. It's like oh I don't remember what she told me, but I know she told me. And they're like damn, like <laughs> they're like aware the answer is right there. <laughs> they're close. Mm-hmm. So yeah, complete faith. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, I, I the the camaraderie and like the, the collective building, that is taking place in this episode. It's, it's so wonderful to watch it play out on screen because everybody is is in it and they're all on the same wavelength of wanting to solve, this murder as quickly as possible and we sort of get a little bit of um uh or actually we sort of jump into the opposite side of that spectrum uh in the following scene uh there's a report that there's sort of a scuffle going down at the morgue between albert who was the special agent that cooper brought in from the fbi to do a lot more of the legwork in terms of forensics um there's a scuffle going on because it is supposed to be the day of Laura's funeral, and Doc Hayward, the doctor who was who who delivered Laura into this world, is putting up a, a roadblock in with with Albert, saying that he can't do anything more to her body because like they have to have the funeral today, and Albert is being very combative because he's approaching it from a investigative standpoint of because this is I want to say it's only the third or fourth day after Laura was murdered 
I, I think it might be the third day. Um, but he he's being very combative about it because he knows that there's so much more to find out and to create links between things that he may find present in, uh, or signposts um, to, to link back into the investigation. And I, I really enjoy like this tension between the two because it's like you have these two individuals who who share a lot of the same sentiments, but it's like their approach is vastly different. And that's where a lot of friction comes between individuals and like interpersonal communication in our daily lives. We get uh, we get the great confrontation, and yeah, uh, yeah, it's a it's a good little good little like Cooper and Albert show. That would be the old show <laughs> if this was being made. <laughs> but like the the roots are still there. It still has like a strong connection to older archetypes and like Cooper Cooper's. Number two, he calls in is like a purely forensic, full dissection, full science. And we haven't gotten the resolution of Albert's character, not the resolution, but we haven't gotten the the redemption. But uh, mm. you can see the groundwork's all here for him still. He's never he's not even cartoonishly villainous, even though they try to play it up a bit with like how he he's hyper insulting. Uh, it's a great bit where he uh, checks Benjamin Horn. <laughs> yes. Which kind of like places the town. I, it, there's so many small details in the writing that it's it still takes me back and I, makes me step back and just think about how thought out everything was to be written and how it fits and like always connecting to something indirectly or directly. And I, I have trouble thinking of other shows that reach these levels, like maybe The Sopranos, so many years after. Mm -hmm. But yeah, just it's like the Hay the Hayward Albert confrontations happening, and then Benjamin Horn hops in to play the mediator, and then Albert immediately like just undercuts him and says like, "Look, I know this may work at your department stores and at your your hotel here in Twin Peaks, but I'm like, yeah, I'm from the FBI." Probably went to a fancy top of the class school and he's like, I'm here to drill into Laura's corpse and get the science to catch the murderer. And yeah. It's, yeah, he's and very then, he's very grounded in like, okay, we, I'm here, what's the physical body gonna tell me? The material world gonna tell me, while Cooper's having dreams about solving it's the mm -hmm. dreams and spiritual aspects, the outside of the material world to solve the case. Mm -hmm. And then we finally get the moment that's been building since Albert's arrival. Uh, Cooper or uh, Truman finally just plants one, <laughs> just lay, just lays down the fist <laughs> on Albert, and then he sort of comically like falls on Dolores' corpse, yes. uh, really playing up a lot of the soap opera aspects that are are sort of sprinkled throughout this entire episode. Um, I want to say even in the following scene, yeah, we, yeah, the following scene, we get the 
parallel narr- narrative that's going on of uh, the soap opera playing out in Twin Peaks called uh, in- Invitation to Love. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a... <laughs> It's like a blue velvety type of background with um, like a little placard called, you know, showing the title. And then uh, I want to say that Leland is either at a psych ward or a hospital in some setting because he's being treated for some what I can imagine to be like a psychological break or anything along the lines of that. And then probably the funeral home, is what I assumed. Oh yeah, but it's like, why is he being injected though? That's so he, weird to to keep him. He's been hysterical. He's been having episodes. Mm, yeah, it's probably a sedative, huh? Yeah, he's getting he's getting the nineteen was it fifties? Yeah, the nineteen fifties approach. <laughs> yes, so just yeah, drugging him. Yeah, just doling it down. I'm surprised they didn't get a lobotomy in there. It's like just oh yeah, let's just bury all of this stuff at rather than addressing it in a holistic or in a productive way. But and I, I wanted to touch on invitation to love. Mm-hmm. The great uh, in every analysis video, which I I remember saying we're not going to talk about a great deal. <laughs> oh no no no, we're we're going to talk about whatever. <laughs> yeah. but I do love the uh, they have a uh, in the. In the meta commentary soap opera TV show, there's a there's the great character uh, Selena Swift. When they're doing the character introductions on the little teaser Leland's watching, it's Selena Swift plays Emerald and Jade, and it shows a split screenshot of like a very demure and reserved woman, and then on the right, it's like a hair metal singer lady, mm-hmm. like showing like oh like. In, in typical melodramas, they have like one actress play twins. Then like her characters are, like two sides or two opposite sides of the same coin. And it's like, oh, like I, they're literally doing that with Laura. And it's like a commentary on that. Like she's she she's a single character with two sides to her. that we have to unravel the mystery of as well as the actress also plays two roles. Because as Leland is sitting there getting probably a morphine injection (laughs) (laughs) and watching the uh, show, someone shows up. Mm -hmm. And it is his niece, Madeline, otherwise known as Maddie. And yeah, like I, I really like that thought on the whole notion of um, duality, because that is a very prevalent theme throughout the exploration of this show and even while Leland is on the couch watching the show like I I feel like this could just be me projecting but I feel like he is definitely identifying with the father of the show which is a I think his name's Jared and Jared's sort of um lamenting this this notion of um wishing his daughter or his two daughters in this case uh, all the best to to go on without him and and then like you said like what do you know maddie shows up out of nowhere and, and it almost jade shows up mm-hmm. as he stands up mm-hmm. and Great it's detail. like yeah it's such a, a a unique um parallel between the two 
to drive home this notion of like absurdity and surrealism and like the sort of manicness that Leland is playing or that Leland is being afflicted with. Like, I feel like for him, it's tough to distinguish what's real and what's fake at this point. Like, if I could catch a glimpse into Leland's mind at this point, I feel like that would be such a unique, like, perspective to just add into the show. But it's like, all we're left with is the imagination, which is far superior. It will always be superior. Um, but this entire episode, I... Like, I, I love Leland's character so much because it is just rich with all of the hidden complexities that we have in, like, our daily lives. And, like, I'm not trying to, like... Anyways, I don't want to give away, like, too much about about this. Um, but I, I love uh, Maddie's, Maddie's uh, reaction to Leland... And having like this very hyper exaggerated, like melodram melodramatic uh, apology that she delivers to him, uh, you know, saying like I'm sorry for for Laura's death, like it must it must be like hurting you a great deal. Um, and then it's it's weird because Leland, I mean, we we kind of share the same sentiment that Leland has watching this play out on on screen, uh, which also goes back to the dream that Cooper had where. The, the man from another place comments on uh, the doppelganger saying, oh, doesn't she look almost exactly like Laura Palmer? Um, and it's sort of playing out right before us in that exact same notion, along with Leland. And then um, in the... In a completely other, like, warm side of the town, in the in the Devil R Diner, we sort of have a sprinkling of darkness that's taking place inside of it, where uh, Norma is sitting down with, I want to say, her husband's lawyer. Um, yes, and, nice, a nice Las Vegas-looking scummy lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with that. <laughs> yeah, has diamonds on it. And the tweed jacket and the slick back hair. Yes. And um, he's basically like goading her into putting on a show the following day at the courthouse to show what a good judge of a character uh, Hank has, or to, to basically give like a, a character profile of her husband Hank, so that way he can be let out, be let out of prison to have. A successful parole and he's sort of like patronizing Norma during this entire interaction being like oh well how are you how are you gonna get him a job and she sort of retorts with I own the double R diner I can get him a job here and to which he just kind of chuckles to himself and makes a very sarcastic remark of oh well um, he's a <laughs> He says, like, oh, you're a very successful... Or you're quite a girl, Norma. And it just shows a bit of the, like, hidden misogyny, like, lingering that she... That Norma, as, like, a successful, like, businesswoman has to, like, deal with uh, in terms of, like, outsiders. Because it's, like, I, I'd imagine in the town of Twin Peaks, she doesn't run into that a whole lot. 
Also, I took it as a great little detail of like the lawyers and extension of Hank. Ah, we yeah. We haven't seen Hank yet. And he's like, when he, you know, when I'm out, what am I going to do? So, oh, he'll work for me. And he's kind of being dismissive because he knows Hank's not going to be cool with that because he knows you know, Hank's a, he's a modern day rogue. He's just, he's a villain. And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm sure he's gonna love working under you. I'm sure, yeah, like the misogyny present in the lawyer character. Mm -hmm. He's like, I'm sure. I'm sure Hank, the man, is gonna love this. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a great little thing of Edwin do that. Hmm? Nope. So yeah, it, um, really, it makes you hate the Hank character early. I think that we've only had one other, maybe one or two other uh, callbacks to Hank leading up to this point. And it's sort of like a like a storm cloud on the horizon. And that that's sort of been the case, you know, from the very beginning with each episode. It's like more and more storm clouds keep arriving. But I in this episode, it sort of feels like they're sort of creating like a like an outer perimeter around the town. And they're gonna sort of converge all at once. It feels like, um, and it, it's sort of a even does so in in terms of like the whole Leo Johnson storyline that we pick up with in the following scene, where uh, Cooper and Truman arrive at the Johnson household, and I, I love this little moment between Cooper and Truman like it, it seems like Truman is like the father figure to to Cooper in a way like a, an elderly father like in his in his uh golden years and Cooper is sort of like on the up and up mm -hmm. of uh reaching like a a full-on maturity or a full-on transition into adulthood consciousness. Um, yeah of consciousness yeah um so where, a child wonder in there yeah, like he, like even though they're out at the Johnson household, like literally right across the the way from Leo, uh, Cooper spots some ducks in the in the pond, <laughs> and he's just filled with the wonder and beauty of the world. Ducks on the lake. Mm hmm. A big smile as they're here to see uh one of the lead, one of the primary leads in the murder of a young woman. Yeah, and it's like even during that entire interaction that they have with Leo, Cooper's smile never really lets up. <laughs> Whereas you could tell that there's a lot of tension between Truman and Johnson uh, because Truman knows the kind of stuff that, that Leo has, has been up to, but it hasn't really fully been uncovered because Leo is very, I can imagine, good about cleaning up his tracks along the way but Cooper sort of like leans into all of these other things that Leo thought were covered up but they just weren't so it's like a nice little uh, nice little mm-hmm yeah. Cooper does a he does a he does a one of the great things I love about again like the representation of uh authority figures or like the investigation police FBI uh, it's a very pure angle it feels like it's working 
It's not. It doesn't feel like it's based in reality. Which <laughs> is one of those things of our reality is darker in ways that the show is capturing that darkness. One of the positives it captures is the way Cooper carries himself and the way the bureau is uh, presented by certain characters to be like an ideal. Uh, like what it's presented and it is what it's supposed to be. Like a like a, a, a righteous force. Same with the bunkhouse, the bunkhouse boys. If I'm getting that correct from memory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. Supposed, it's supposed to be like a bastion of uh of purity and like virtue, and it reminds me of the of like the Hippocratic oath in a way. I've I've probably mentioned that before on on a prior episode, but it's like this code of honor that never or that feels unwavering, and it's it's a it's like the i it's about the pursuit of reaching that ideal benevolent and like helpful and virtuous yet honorable uh archetype of you know making sure that you are protecting the ones who are being taken advantage of or who are being hurt and all these other things and yeah i i agree pat i i love that aspect of cooper throughout the series so far i wanted to connect that to i I, I've seen at my work recently uh, some there's like two shows and I think one of them's like just called FBI and it is the most uh, it's like it's like a canary in the mines on our society and our path <laughs> where it's like yeah the FBI agents so like they're going into a place they're they're Kevlar'd up they have M16s they have uh, their villains are cartoonish and uh, their motivations are unjustifiable or unperceivable outside of their inherent evil nature. And our villain, our heroes are righteous, armed to the teeth and kill without hesitation. <laughs> it's a great it's a great thing to see in this show. Like, oh, no, there's there's. There's a. There's a presence. These figures can have in a society or in a culture community and uh yeah it's just a great little thing of like the sheriff keeps tabs on people they're personable they're friendly cooper can like approach the cold-blooded people or whatever or he can he can enter with them and just completely passively control the conversation or control the interaction because there's no they're not in direct conflict at that moment, but he can come in there and just, you know, it's not. He's not flashing his gun. He's not. <laughs> yeah, it's just a great little. Reflection of that. That used to be an option. <laughs> in media, at least. And now it's not. Now it's just. Yeah. War it's on just, crime. It's a it's war. Just, it's just not a. Yeah. It's, it's pure black and white. Yes, unfortunately, um, it, it just feels like there's more of an agenda to be had when it comes to a lot more of the, like those narratives. Um, even like earlier this week, I was talking with some people uh, at my work and they were telling me about a movie that they saw about it was it's kind of like this. Um, this formulaic 
uh, blueprint of having like four to five individuals like uh, outcasts but like loose cannons in a way where for some reason or another they're brought together to combat like this ultra powerful ultra evil organization and they're telling me oh yeah it's like there's a lot of good moments there's like all these funny things and I I told them oh yeah you know it seems like it'd be a cool thing they're like oh well do you not like watch those kinds of things and I was saying well I'm not saying that it's like bad like I've never seen the thing but to me like at first glance it has like that veneer to it that is sort of packaged to create like this hidden message of drilling in this this um mentality that violence and like escalation and rogue and like renegade uh approaches to like these sorts of things is the only way to go about solving like division and like all these different things and like compared to like this show it has such a, a lighter approach which obviously like these are all both both things are products of fantasy and it, they in no way reflect the the real uh, experience that we have of just waking up in a daily life like in the various systems that we're placed in but like if, if, if these are actually a reflection of like the of the dreams that uh, we're all sort of linked to I would much rather see uh, this sort of approach that is more cautious in its in its stepping uh, that is a bit more um, conscientious about the repercussions that can be had um, compared to one of escalation and hostility. And it, it's sort of like a nice little segue into the following scene where anytime Major Briggs and Bobby are in a scene together, it fills a void within me. Uh, for for a nice moment in time um, and I love how it starts off I we, we get the gist that, oh no it, it is taking place in uh, the Briggs household where there's the crucifix and then it looks like there's these two I forget what they're called but it's like a certain type of um, plant um, and then Bobby wait what were you saying it's, uh, I'm only vaguely familiar but I, like palm Yes, like, Palm. Has like, mm -hmm. Yeah, has that connection to like Palm Sunday stuff? Mm -hmm. That's what that's what I always see when I when I see those leaves in the cross. That's what it takes me back to. And uh, Bobby is sort of uh, having like this uh, this quiet moment of you know approaching the the crucifix and almost like wanting to like touch it or like choke like anything like that. Um, he's like reaching out to the spiritual void only to be interrupted by his father who you can tell that there's a lot of tension between these two and unfortunately the way that Major Briggs like you could tell that he has thought about the best way to approach these sorts of things with Bobby 
but even in even during the approach he is very self-aware about the fact that he has spent a lot of time trying to create this this foolproof way of getting through to him that just doesn't work mm. and here we have major briggs who is supposed to be this this very upstanding ind- individual who is sort of like the the voice of reason the voice of uh, benevolence and empathy and almost like this transcendental being who is just unable to get through to his son who is consistently just playing with his lighter who has like this this ruminating look of violence and hatred and anger and frustration and th- this episode really put into perspective uh, Bobby's own struggles um, in terms of like growth and because it's like who who is Bobby as a character? He's he's a glorified football player. He is dating. Well, he was dating like the high school sweetheart. He is engaging in a bunch of like these darker aspects that make up Twin Peaks such as the the drug trafficking um who knows what else and he isn't a part of a broken home at least that we can see his uh, parents love each other his uh he isn't poor his dad's a very decorated individual but for some reason or another he is going through this very rebellious phase in his life where he where the uh, idealistic view of what life uh, he wanted to be or whatever he's receiving just isn't cutting it anymore it's it's broken it isn't whole it's a reflection of the uh, especially Briggs and Bobby it's a reflection of the uh, the cultural decline the uh, of the 50s through the 70s which, uh, you know, can be interpreted as, like, there's always two lynch points you can attach to that decline. You know, like the 50s Americana, and then the quick transition to the uh, free love 60s and all the other stuff, as well as the inherent dark sides in that, like the Manson stuff. But yeah, you can connect it to the atomic, the atomic developments and the nuclear uh, psychosis that fractured the uh, faith in institutions or uh, Vietnam, the Vietnam fracture, and the Nixon admin, where it feels like Briggs is very much the old American decorated military speaks, you know, kind of like a the way the way I envision like a Theodore Roosevelt to talk about, you know, a man's journey in life and coming to grips with death. And then you have a uh, Bobby, who's the younger generation, disillusioned, and like yeah, it's like there's no direct, there's no direct connection between what made Bobby the rebellious young man he is. But I think it's 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 left open to be just it's just different time, it's a different era, America has changed, and these two characters represent that quick shift. Or like uh, that's my interpretation at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for one reason or another, um, 
there is just a, a unique disconnect between the two in spite of Major Briggs's best efforts to sort of bridge the gap. Um, there's so, so far, mm-hmm. so far, yep, there's, so far, we're seeing a small redemption in Major Briggs's character. He's he's introduced very hostile or very like strong armed. He like slaps Bobby in the opening scene, mm-hmm. and now he's 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 clearly putting in an effort to be present in there and help him through this moment he's misperceiving as extreme grief and uh you know where we're going I always talk to you about this but uh I can't wait until we get to that scene but yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and like I said I'll, I'll say it time and time again anytime these two are on screen it's just a very it's it's like one of the most sought after milestones that I catch or that I like to rest at during like this journey of Twin Peaks. And I think that you put it excellently, Pat, in terms of like the sort of generational uh projections that are that are being placed on these two individuals. And they they are basically one in the same. Like they're just a part of different times. That's that's it different times, different problems. And it's so strange how that that sort of uh, pull it'll probably always be around for as long as humanity is, is alive. And it's just so timeless in that way. And I wonder if it gets any easier or if there's a, a better way to bridge that gap. But I feel like the only constant that is able to narrow that divide is time i feel like it always it always has been that way and always will be that way it's just time has a unique way of shaping perspective and i guess we'll we'll have to see where it goes from there in terms of these two um but in the following scene we are transported back to the sheriff station where Hawk sort of touches base with Truman and Cooper about the one-armed man and how he is, you know, going to continuing tracking this individual. And then we reunite with Albert once more, who's a bit more toned down, uh, you know, put back in place in, in a way. And he basically lets Cooper know... I don't know about Truman, if Truman, like, was felt this way or not, but uh, he mentions that Laura did test positive for cocaine, had a bunch of it in her system, had the the bag of it uh, that was in the diary, had traces of it as well. However, uh, he mentions that there were two different types of fiber embedded on her wrists and upper arms, so it suggests that she was tied up twice during the night of her murder and that she has bites on her arm which are and claw marks uh, that look like they came from a large bird. And yeah, it just... It, it, I, I really love Albert's characterization in this scene because you could tell that he has been checked in a way. However, he feels a... A lingering resentment towards the town as a whole because 
he knows that if he had been given a little bit more time to, uh, you know, investigate the rem the remains, he could have, you know, found a bit more pieces to the overarching puzzle. Uh, the main thing that we found from this is that there was a little bit of plastic inside of um, her stomach, uh, and. It's like, oh, well, what 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 else could have been there? Could there have been, like, another letter or anything like that? Or anything like that. Um, but I, I also love um, the, the dynamic between Cooper and Albert, too. You could, the friendship is absolutely there in the, in the camaraderie. However, Cooper is very much taking the side of the town. And almost to a fault in a way. Um, I, 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 I wait. What were you gonna say, Pat? I was say, uh, and I love in Albert's. It, communi- it communicates his character, but he's doing the rundown of all the details. He he revels in the details, but then, like you mentioned, you quickly see that he's reveling and doing his job good. When he's describing like the fibers, the piece of plastic, the leaning for a kiss, and he kind of mimes it out, and like mm. all the the small bits he d- sneaks in there, it's a great little character thing where he's he's reveling in like, oh here's here's everything I found out, and they like they were like good work Albert, and then or then that, but it, then he goes somber towards the end when he turns off the video, and then he just like you know reflects on like oh I could I could solve a lot more if I had more time. Or it's like it's resentful towards, you know, having this give up the autopsy. Not out of like a selfish anything reason. It's just like pure like, oh, I could have, you know, I could have done good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's, it shows he's not, again, like a more, a more poorly written character it would be like a. Like, oh, you know, like a. Who could perform an autopsy, autopsy, some kind of freak, some kind of gross guy, some kind of... <laughs> and it's like, no, it's a, it's a complex character. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such, like, a unique contrast between, like, this shift that Cooper is going through. Um, it's probably been present long before the events of Twin Peaks as a whole. Um, but he's sort of getting in his own way or letting the dream and illusion of Twin Peaks as a whole uh, sort of clout his mind. And we we see that when he pulls out the tape recorder and starts um, recording an entry for Diane uh, saying that he'd like her to look into his pension packages and that he's considering purchasing a plot of land in Twin Peaks, which... I, I view as both like such a warm moment, but also a dangerous moment uh, in Cooper's development. Like he's not as sharp as he could be. And then we transition into the following scene where Ed and Norma are having, or Ed and um, Nadine are having a intimate moment, but it feels very tense on uh, Ed's part. Um, like they're both um, looking at like a sculpture that Nadine, I, I, she either like purchased or made, I don't know. But um, 
she talks about like how she felt like they're really together again and that Ed came back to her last night and she recounts this very personal and revealing story about how in high school she used to watch Ed and Norma out on the football field. Um, I, I assume that Norma was a cheerleader and Ed was of course on the football team. And Nadine reveals that she viewed herself as like a brown little mouse. Brutal. Like, yes. <laughs> it's so sad. And like how she knew that how she knew inside that uh, once Ed got to know her that they would end up together and that they'd be together forever. And then you just see this glazed over look on Ed's eyes of knowing that he that the fantasy is and never will be true. And I, I love the band-aid that he has on his head too. Like it's just such a a nice little reminder of like the fight that he got in uh, at, at the uh, roadhouse. But it's like it's just it just lead, lends a little bit more um brokenness to his character as a whole. So when I see stuff like that, it's, I really appreciate it. It's, I always use this word for it. It's like, it's texture. It's texture. Mm-hmm. It's not just Ed standing there without it. It adds more realism, adds more to the universe. It adds so indirectly. It adds like a striking rectangle on his head, even. And it's just, it just breaks up the monotony that could arise on top of there not being that much at all. It's just, yeah, there's, it feels like they're so aware of what they're doing. And yeah, it's just, no, when you pointed that out, it's like, yeah, it's just, it's, it just strikes me. The small, the smallest details. Norma's eye patch. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, we never, we, we find out the origin and all that, but it's just, uh, you know, just makes her a more striking character. Mm-hmm. And it's like her wound compared to Ed's wound. Like her wound is, it's not a superficial wound. Like it won't recover. Like she is forever blinded in one eye. And it also uh, becomes amplified when uh, Ed mentioned, or when they hear the motorcycle pull into the driveway. And she asks Ed, who is that? And he says, oh, it's... It's um, James. He's he's pulling in the driveway, and then she just replies, "James, who?" Like it, it just goes to show that there is a major part of Nadine's psyche, as well as personality and physicality, that are missing compared to Ed, who whose wound will heal, has healed over, and has sort of outgrown this relationship that he has with Nadine. And uh, we get a little bit of James in the scene mentioning how he's unable to go to the funeral that they're about that they're minutes away from heading over to. And we transition back to the Great Northern where Audrey is sort of lurking about, uh, listening in on private conversations, uh, this time between Sylvia, her mother, and Ben. And... I love like the the uh, the way that they handled showing the hidden passageway 
between behind the walls like it's so disturbing to see that that was actually built into the foundation of a hotel meant for passing individuals who want private res- or want private rooms and um even even in the uh the way that she's able to spy into the room it's like a little hexagon that she pulls out and there's like a carved in hole where she sees uh, Jacob, Dr. Jacoby trying to pull her brother Johnny out of a episode that he has. Um, for some reason, he has like a deep fascination with this, uh, with Native Americans and wearing the, the this, like this uh, headdress. And Jacoby gets him to, you know, he grabs him by the face in a very tender way and shows him that he's okay and that he doesn't need this in order to feel normal. And Johnny takes it off on his own will, and they just share this very intimate embrace with each other, even while Sylvia and Ben are sort of like fighting. And it, it just gave me a little bit more empathy and uh, made me believe that Jacoby has a bit more humanity than he like lets on. Or at least that we've seen so far. Oh, yeah, it's, it's it's redeeming his character who had a a, a rough intro. <laughs> now he's, yeah. I I love Johnny. I wish he had more uh, more screen time. Yeah, I agree. Like especially in the following scene at the funeral. Yes, it's one of the best Johnny moments. Mm-hmm. But the yeah, we get like this wonderful shot that shows a majority of the townspeople all together for this very ceremonial uh, process, and we rarely ever get that in this show, or I, I want to say up to this point, and. It's been building up to this moment ever since it first started, too, and it's executed so well. And <laughs> I, I found this part to be like so. Like, I had. Like, it had moments of like cheesiness, melodrama, but also authenticity, where the preacher is like saying how Laura always told him that he spoke too much and that he just wants to do her honor by. You know, sharing how great of a person she was. And I love all of the little portraits during the editing of this sequence as well that sort of focus in on the individual reactions that a lot of the central characters are are uh, expressing. And we get to see Donna. I really, I also really appreciate when we see all the portraits and the, the uh, single shots of characters at the funeral. Uh, you get Cooper looking like right to left as w- as the editing is cutting between, you know, separate characters and their reactions. Mm-hmm. It does a great job of like building out this mental map of uh, placing you there with everyone else. And it, it sort of builds up the tension in a very unspoken way where... The, the the catalyst is James 
coming to the funeral, but the lingering or the um, the dynamite, so to speak, is is Bobby. He's like sort of building to like this ignition where the gunpowder is going to go off and create this this scene of uh, like it's just been building since the beginning of the funeral. And I love this moment that Bobby has because finally he like lets out this like inner rage that he's been feeling like with the injustice of the world and how he feels so much guilt towards himself but also a lot of resentment towards the townsfolk saying that everybody knew that Laura was in trouble but they didn't do anything about it to help her including himself and that everyone there is a hypocrite and then we sort of see and it's heartbreaking because you see Johnny holding on to like the Peter Pan book and he's like come out of like this episode that he's had only to be subjected to another traumatic incident Bobby steps right over Johnny who's uh you know he's but that was a great even though I'm, lo- I'm looking at the stills now, when Johnny sa- is saying his amen uh, over his shoulder, out of focus, is like Bobby leaning on the, on the obelisk of a grave adjacent. <laughs> mm. The one that he hops down from after shouting. And like, yeah, it's a great... It's like Johnny, Johnny's this pure character. So, you know, he's just... He's, he's taking in the energy, and he's, he's saying the amen. And then everyone's quick to celebrate him. Oh, thank you, Johnny. I think that's like the breaking point for Bobby, where he, you know, he's. Everyone's like, oh, they like, you know, beautifully said this person who's. I think like, probably the least likely person to be able to help. Laura. Is like the one, the first one to say the amen, and then everyone's like hopping on that energy, and Bobby hops down. And that's where he's saying, like, oh yeah, amen, amen, everyone. You all let this happen. <laughs> don't, mm-hmm. don't celebrate yourselves in her death through Bo- through Johnny's innocence. <laughs> it's like, oh, my always my read. He does, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> it's a great moment, a great, and then I didn't even pick up the Peter Pan book, which is another, I, I, I love Johnny. <laughs> I love I love the Peter Pan syndrome archetype stuff. I love all that. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of uh, escalates to the point where James steps in to put an end to Bobby's rant, uh, saying how, like, they should all save their words because Laura would have laughed at them anyway. Mm-hmm. And it goes to this brilliant use of slow motion. Like, I don't really comment a whole lot on... Like this, this like technical, on the technical utilization of a uh, slow motion and and a lot of media, just because it's like, it's hard to justify that thing, you know, like with like a sliding shot or a dolly or whatever. Like it, I, I usually find that it's best not to talk about that stuff because it's, it's just a tool to like, you know, capture an emotion. But like this use of slow motion is just so wonderful because it's like. It's really embellishing like this crescendo of release of letting Laura go in the town and seeing Bobby this like simmering like volcano in a way 
like finally erupt and have some sort of release in tandem with James, who is kind of like the antithesis of Bobby, who's a bit more reserved. And then you just see the rage and resignation play out on all their faces. And then it just goes over the top. It, it just really leans into it with Leland just jumping onto the casket as it's being lowered. And it just ultimately breaking the machine to where it's just shorting out and going up and down, up and down, up and down. And Sarah Palmer has like... <laughs> like yet another moment of uh, embarrassment that she feels that's being brought upon her family and you know it's like they all they want to do is let Laura go but they just can't you know oh, yeah, amazing uh, an amazing scene of the Bobby Bobby James the Bobby and James dichotomy of Laura's dichotomy of the good side and the bad side. And Bobby's fully convinced. You know, she, she'd laugh at these sentimental words. He, see, he saw that side of her and James is like, oh no, I saw the, the pure love side of her. And then it just cuts to the... Like, while they're fighting, like, Leland's, oh, hold on, let me... Let me... <laughs> Like, I'm coming down from whatever they gave me, and I'm going to make... <laughs> I am stricken with such grief. I'm going to, like... He completely overshadows the fight of, like, the town would be talking about that. Like, oh, can you believe those two fought Laura's boyfriend and her secret lover, James, fought at her own funeral? And, like, no, no, Leland's on top of the casket, the machine's malfunctioning, and everyone's... Yeah, it's brutal. It's so brutal. Yeah, and the evidence that you just said, like, it showcases itself in the very next scene. Like, yes. it literally cuts to the diner of Shelly recounting this event with, like, a napkin box to uh, visitors. And I love how, how Shelly's on the outside. It's like a small mm -hmm. detail. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't, do we see her at the funeral? Uh oh yeah yeah she's uh she's right next to the priest at the funeral. Okay okay. Yeah I want to say that she's on. Oh yeah she's on the right side and then Log Lady is on the left hand side, which I loved. I, I love the fact that Log Lady is is literally right next to the to the priest. Because it's like Ignore a. Hmm? Ignore my point then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But, but uh, touching upon Shelly's characterization, I it gave me... I'm, I'm glad that it's showing this side of Shelly because it shows how deeply immature she still is. And, you know, it's kind of like what, uh, what a bullied person does in response to being bullied. Uh, they sort of like to project fun and bully other people in a way. Because right now, she this is a form of bullying where she's making fun of Leland and his grief and how he like fell onto the casket. She's reveling the embarrassment and the, mm -hmm. yeah. But again, okay, okay, back, back to my point then, because you saved it, thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah, to me, I interpret that as a great little communication of uh, Shelly's, Shelly's outsider 
her smaller outsider position in the community of like, you know, she's she's poor. She's not of the Hayward, Laura, middle class. She like dropped out of high school to marry her trucker boyfriend. And now she's a waitress at the local diner and they live in like a half being built house. They, they don't have the they're, they're not at the Hayward house or the Laura house, which is like more urban. And so, yeah, her her. Her muted presence in the funeral. And then her in the following up, like mocking it, it's just like the two visitors to the diner. No, I took it as like she's removed enough because of her position in the community where she could. Uh, and then, like you mentioned, the, the bullying aspect of like there's like probably a resentment angle in Shelley. I'm like, oh, you, you believe all those those crazier rich people? Mm -hmm. The dad lost it and he threw himself in the casket where it's like, we don't know if Shelly's parents at all, do we? Mm -mm. She has like a surrogate mother figure in Norma. And that's it. Yeah. So it's like, it's a great little like her, the, the hard cut to that immediately communicates so much, especially if you overread BS like me. <laughs> but yeah, that was my little, that was my little uh, ramble on that. I, I see how it's mean and bullying, but I still think, like, Shelly's great. Oh, no, I, I completely agree. I think that Shelly is a great character. It's kind of like um, what children do, uh, like why that cycle continues. It's because they don't feel like they've been seen or heard. So in order to be seen and heard, they have to take on the aspects that were dealt to them in a bullying situation. Um. Like, I, I love Shelly. Shelly is easily one of my favorite characters um, as a whole, just because, like you said, Pat, she does have that outsider mentality or that uh, persona that uh, she unfortunately has to take on because she doesn't have a, nearly as much support as a lot of the other characters her age have. And she's like trying to her best to like relate with people to get some sort of support but it's all it's sort of all in vain and i i love how in even like in the transition from her displaying that to like these two these two older men um nobody sort of comes in to correct that behavior so it's just her being stuck in that immaturity phase of like wanting to break out of it and then it just goes to the uh the or truman hawk and big ed sitting in a booth waiting for coop to arrive it's it shows like how that vicious cycle can like be enabled and unfortunately shelly was a part of that which i don't think shows her true authenticity i just it's it's kind of like just uh pro uh projecting or reanimating that negative energy that one, I mean, that people take on from time to time. But um, this this next part, though, is this is one of my favorite takeaways from Twin Peaks it's, is the underground society known as the Bookhouse Boys. Um, it kind of reminds me of a uh, for anyone who's seen Game of Thrones, it's like the Night's Watch. Like it, it, there's always like this. Um, I, I love when shows are able to build a sort of uh, like night or a watch watch group or this 
it's almost like a militia in a way where it's like you can't trust the the uh the typical organizations who are like in charge of like you know overseeing the law of the land you have to sort of take matters into your own hand but with this iteration of it it feels much more holistic and much more um much more grounded with a stronger sense of conviction as well as a uh, virtue and i love how ed is the one who's questioning uh cooper you know He's, he's questioning Truman and Hawk into, like, letting Cooper into the bookhouse, boys. And this whole... I mean, even, like, Norma has, like, a sort of hesita hesitancy when she's, like, getting Cooper a slice of pie and, like, ice cream. Uh, you can, like, read it on her face, and then Cooper immediately picks up on uh, Ed being in love with Norma. And it's, like, his, his way of getting into the group. He, like, sort of alleviates that worry and uh, hesitancy that Ed has. And I love that aspect. It's a great little, again, back to the little character interaction moment to communicate. Like Ed's like, oh, I'm going I'm I'm to give him the, the run through. I'm going to give him the rundown. Put him through the ringer. See if he has the, the stuff. And then, yeah, it's immediately disarmed. With a little... Mm -hmm. Like, so Ed, how long have you been in love with Norma? <laughs> He's like, oh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting you, us to talk about this. <laughs> or it's just like an immediate flex of like, you're trying to run me through the ringer. I've already read you like a book. <laughs> what is this about? <laughs> and um, I love uh, the way that Truman handles this um, integration of, you know, bringing Cooper into the fold. He gives him, like, you know, like, they're just there having a conversation, eating food, drinking coffee, and it's sort of his version of Cooper introducing the entire police department to the Tibetan method of uh, using psychoanalytics to investigate uh, this murder. And I like the fact that Truman is getting this characterization because it shows that he isn't just this blank slate of uh, goodness and law. Like, there is a little bit of edge to him where he isn't afraid to do what he has to do in a way that doesn't harm others. But it's sort of like subverting the, the red tape that uh, he most often runs into by employing the likes of uh, Ed, who is just a normal citizen as well as other people that we'll see. Um, but he lets on that there is a darkness and a presence lingering inside of Twin Peaks that makes it what it is. And that even in spite of the darkness, they all have a deep love and appreciation for this town that they have spent almost their entire lives in. And uh, they talk about like this secret society and then they give the bookhouse... Uh, sign which is you know putting your running a finger down the side of your face and then they bring him to the bookhouse where we see Jacques Renault's uh, younger brother Bernard uh, James and his friend have captured him most likely from the roadhouse and they're trying to get information from him because as we know Jacques is a bartender at the roadhouse who has been known to run drugs most 
uh, or specifically cocaine from Canada into Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great little. I, I I'm inherently skeptical. So my because of my conspiracy nature, to any uh. Off the record organizations, off the. Any Fort Bragg shenanigans happening? Oh God. <laughs> but uh, Twin Peaks goes out of its way, especially to establish that there is a uh, you know there's a. Uh, there's higher stakes at play here, and it's believable. There's a uh, yeah, there's higher. Yeah, there's 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 a there's an unseen hand that needs to be countered or an unseen something. And uh, yeah, I think it's a uh, it's a great detail. And it's a great thing to see Cooper's uh, like dipping his toes in the water, maybe. Like he he skirts up to like he has a, it feels like he has a personal line to not cross. That's like just beyond or it's clearly beyond the bureau's line. And mm-hmm. you kind of see that communicated with Albert when he's Albert's as the incident report and he wants to report Harry for assault and uh Cooper gives him the quick like rundown of like he's like you know this this Twin Peaks is a unique place there's something here something that's missing from the rest of the country <clears throat> mm-hmm. as well as just like like yeah he hit you but uh I like you it was warranted kinda and uh mm-hmm. he, he's you know the sheriff's a good man. I believe in him. And you're out of line. And, like, technically I should report, you know, I should sign the document. He did assault you following the book, following, like, paperwork and bureaucracy. But he's like, no, there's something here in Twin Peaks that's gone. And you, you know, you kind of, you kind of betrayed it in your actions. And, like, that kind of connects to the roadhouse. Or not, jeez. The bunkhouse boys. Bookhouse boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah, I like the feels like a, a logical through line where Cooper would. I yeah, I feel like I feel like Cooper, an audience, the audience has made the feel like Cooper. It feels like again we're being let in, and I'm I'm a little hesitant. I'm like, okay, how far do these guys go? What is this force? Mm-hmm. How do you combat it? And yeah, it's a great. Because it's like the the I mean we've talked about it before. Where at night in Twin Peaks, everything sort of changes. It, oh, yeah. um, like the it it goes from like yin to yang, and all of the darkness that was cast away in the in the sunlight comes back with a vengeance, and really overexerts its influence to the point where it just saps a lot of the life out of Twin Peaks. And uh, we see people with the likes of like Jacques Renault, like Leo Johnson, like all of these darker individuals sort of have, that's when they're most active. And uh, even when Jacques is like coming come to a shift at the roadhouse, he sees like this red light that's been tripped by his brother to warn him. And he goes and calls Leo saying, oh, you got to get me out of here. Like we got to do a border run. 
And then we see uh, Leo leaving his place, uh, telling Shelly to like mind her own business when she asks him where he's going. But then we see that there's a bit of darkness brewing inside of Shelly as well by, you know, revealing the fact that she has a gun and that she hides it inside of their living room. And um, there's a... Uh, Guys, it was a bloody shirt, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, with the bloody shirt as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love... I. Uh... I love the transitions when you talk about the, the darkness at night. I love the use of the uh, stoplights and the soft wind. Mm -hmm. As well, and especially in this episode, like it, also at the funeral, I believe there's like a transition of like wind in the trees. It's kind of getting dusk. And then uh, the funeral happens and it cuts to the Outside of the RR at the intersection, the traffic lights are changing and they're being slightly moved by the wind. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah. this, uh, this, um, this omniscient wind has its like own life force to it. It almost feels like the evilness that is present is just a constant observer of the ongoings of Twin Peaks. No, the, the winds. It's, the wind is like literally an unseen force affecting the environment and you see like the small sways and the small movements. Mm-hmm. And it's like all of the warmer moments that happen in Twin Peaks are either in daylight or in the comfort of one's home where there's like this very soft uh, tungsten light that like illuminates like the glowing faces and even in the next scene between like Josie and Truman... Like, it's a very intimate, like, look into their personal lives because uh, other, than, like, other than these moments, we don't really see any um, personal moments with Truman. Like, he's always on the job. And, like, this just seems like a break for him where he's, you know, coming back from the... Or he's on his way back to the station, but he takes a stop to see Josie. And Josie has, like, a lot of anxiety. Like, she's touching her neck a lot. Um, kind of like speaking in whispers and then we hear that uh, or we see that Catherine is listening in uh, through this uh, little paging system at their house and she knows that uh, Josie is on to her plans that she has with Ben Horn uh, she knows about the second uh, ledger book which was ultimately you know taken back by uh, Catherine and I, I love that uh, Truman believes everything that Josie's saying to him as well. And, like, he's he wants to help, but he just can't because they're, they're covering up their tracks so well. And I love, like, Pete doesn't get a lot of showtime in, like, these past few episodes. But when he's on screen, uh, I, I love Pete Martell so much. <laughs> like, the fact that he's able to, like call out his wife you know somebody he's been with for like years upon years upon years and he's noticing that like she's going down this very dark path but is also like not but he doesn't fully break away from her and he's like oh well I'll just look for my fishing stuff in my truck after being like completely lambasted by Catherine saying well if you in the next time you and 
uh, Josie want to take a peek inside of stuff, like, you should confront me to my face. And he doesn't even engage with her. I'll, um, I'll check hmm? the truck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, in the following scene, we see, like, this brilliant image of uh, the cemetery at night and Jacoby coming to pay his own respects to Laura. And he confides in Cooper, who has been waiting there, that he's a terrible person and that, you know, he listens to all these people's problems, but ultimately he just doesn't care about them, even though they think of him as their friend. And he expresses that Laura is the only person that's been able to, like, reach him. And it's sort of like a, even, it brings upon that pity once more that we have uh, towards him as a character, as like an adult, as a doctor. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that that was a nice little humanizing moment for Jacoby. No, it gets a, not a good redemption moment. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that duster... Oh yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say. Uh, Leo's Leo's sweater. Leo's sweater. The Shelly scene when she hides the gun. The gun has like a marble or ivory handle. Mhm. Mm so many small, the duster. So many small things. Yep, they just add like so much insight into the characters, like to where you feel like you've known them your entire life. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, Shelly would have an ivory-handed, or ivory, you know, handled pistol. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, kind of naughty, but it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good little 80s American. Like, yeah, you would have a, a gaudy gun. <laughs> the American. And then we uh, cut back to Josie and Truman still having their, their moment together, where Josie believes that uh, somebody did kill her husband, Andrew, and that Ben and Catherine are wanting to take the mill away from her. And then Truman sort of uh, comforts her, and then we transition back to this beautiful scene oh, yes. at the Great oh, Northern between um, Cooper and Hawk. A moon transition? You know it's coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the good stuff's coming. Oh, yeah. And yeah, just the shots, the lighting, it's perfect. It's a great, it's an amazing moment between Hawk and Cooper with uh, Leland in the background. Yep, they're talking about like the various kinds of souls that exist in a person. And um, uh, Hawk gives a little bit of insight into his own ancestry by saying that it's a Blackfoot legend that waking souls that give life to the mind and the body they and there's like another aspect where a dream soul is always wandering and that um, uh, nobody knows where they wander aside from it being faraway places that is very distant from the waking world and Cooper says, you know, oh, the land of the dead. I, I, and, or no, um, yeah, they talk about the land of the dead, which like goes back to like the whole Tibetan commentary. And they're sort of pondering, you know, is that where Laura is? And, 
uh, Hawk just immediately cuts it down. He's like, no, Laura's in the ground. And that's the only, like, that's the only thing that we can be certain of. And it's such a nice little uh, juxtaposition on the smiling Leland. Like, he finally feels some sort of, like, hope for release. And, like, this very warm moment of everyone dancing at the Great Northern. And he finally, like, gets to dance, you know? He gets to purge that energy that's been haunting him. And then we have, like, this brilliant, like, the shot and composition, the lighting, like... And even just the way that they're, like, in repose of, uh, Coop and Hawk. And then they cheers one another. It's so... It's so humble, it's so authentic. And then Cooper just says, Godspeed. Like, and he has like this look of like uncertainty on his face. And I absolutely love it. And then we... Great, great, great. This whole scene is amazing. Mm -hmm. And then they sort of have to escort Leland out after he's having another episode of no one dancing with him. In the background, he's a. Uh... Yeah, absolutely wonderful moment. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah, you're good. Yeah. In the background, Leland is anguishing. He needs to be escorted away. <laughs> and it, it's sort of... Wait, what were you going to say? I was, I was, he's, it's nice that he's helped by our protagonists. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they stop what they're doing in order to, like, help out this, this mourning father who's just trying to, you know, keep a foot in inside of the community and not become fully isolated. Like, I'm sure many people do during their time of grieving and it i love the the final shot of the series too or of the show like it goes back to what you were saying with the transitional pieces of utilizing the uh, stoplights as well as the trees and the wind like we see just that red stoplight you know hanging in the wind on like that thin wire just winging back and forth that's where it ends that stoplight. Every, every time I think about this, what makes what makes the show special? It's a stoplight. Mm-hmm. It's that stuff. To me, at least, the trend it helps it helps the show transcend uh, the standard. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, any closing thoughts on this episode, Pat? Uh yes. I, I, I forgot to mention it during because I'm looking at stills of the show as we're discussing. Uh, the the portraits at the funeral. Mm-hmm. Some of the best shots in the show. Especially, I believe it's Audrey. The like Audrey and Co- Audrey and Cooper glance towards the end before the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that stands out as like the uh, it really cements their the characters' relationships a relationship. Like if you go back, it's like 
Paul leaves behind Audrey. Uh, she's backlit by the nearing dusk sun. Has like a fall vibe. And uh, yeah, she's like, I think she, and then she looks to Cooper and smiles, and then it's just a cut to Cooper with the green trees behind him. Uh, a little smaller in the frame. Kind of somber, but he smiles back. Great moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, I wanted to get that out there. Because uh, it's one of the few shots in the show like that. I feel, mm-hmm. if I'm remembering correctly, because it's it, it plays it standard for the most of the part. But like those shots really just jump out. Yeah, that entire sequence is just one of the the highlights of the show to me. Like, there's so many. Like, it's just gonna keep racking up from here on out. <laughs> oh yeah, it's on. It's we've we've hit we've hit the running start of the show. It's it's going hard. Mm-hmm. And. Even after I finished watching this episode, I, I felt like not much really happened to progress the the overall uh, the overarching plot. However, it was very necessary compared to a lot more of the uh, otherworldly stuff that happened in the previous episode, as well as uh, a lot more of the melodrama. It helps to balance it out to create this uh, resting state. And I feel like this episode is very critical in implementing that that rest, you know, to give us some time to come back into the the flow of Twin Peaks. And if you've been listening this far, thank you so much for keeping up with us. Uh, we're going to keep on keep on going with this series and if you want to stay up to date with us you can follow us at lay film podcast on instagram uh, if you feel like reaching out to us you can do so at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com um i believe this series um if you if you're wanting to find it somewhere i believe it's on paramount plus uh if not you can rent it buy it on like uh itunes amazon a few other places as well um as always thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one do you believe in the soul several more than one blackfoot legend Waking souls that give life to the mind and the body. A dream soul that wanders. Dream souls? Where do they wander? Faraway places. The land of the dead. Is that where Laura is? Laura's in the ground, Agent Cooper. That's the only thing I'm sure of.